Hello, and welcome to the American Civil War Podcast, Episode 61, Fall of the King, The Failure of Confederate Cotton Diplomacy. Before we begin today, one point to bring up is that this episode will largely focus on the British relationship with the Confederacy in the United States. It will only tangentially include France or Spain or other European countries. Britain, as the mother country for the United States and the world's foremost naval power, had the most impact on the war. However, on a simple pragmatic point, France under Napoleon III was playing a complex diplomatic game in 1861 that ultimately resulted in temporarily taking over Mexico. That is a huge story on its own, and one we'll be sure to document in a separate episode in the future. On to today's episode. Confederates believed, at a fundamental or even primal level, in a few great truths. By the end of the Civil War, every one of these had been demolished, exposed to self-deception at best, and sometimes outrageous moral crimes or plain-rank foolishness. If you look back at our episode, King Cotton and the Fire Eaters, you'll recall the infamous King Cotton speech by South Carolina Senator James Hammond. The lengthy speech actually had much more to it than just cotton, but the overall gist made several significant claims while defending slavery in Kansas. First, Hammond proclaimed that the South, in essence, didn't need the North or its manufacturers. He claimed that it could fully separate from the North and lose nothing in the bargain, buying whatever necessary on the international market. Second, he declared the superiority of slave labor over free labor. But third, and perhaps most significantly, Hammond imagined that cotton had unique commercial power, and that the civilized world, as he saw it, had become entirely dependent on it. To quote from the man himself, But if there were not other reason why we should never have war, would any sane nation make war on cotton? Without firing a gun, without drawing a sword, should they make war on us, we could bring the whole world to our feet. The South is perfectly competent to go on one, two, or three years without planting a seed of cotton. I believe that if she was to plant but half our cotton for three years to come, it would be an immense advantage to her. I am not so sure but that after three years total abstinence, she would come out stronger than ever she was before, and better prepared to enter afresh upon her great career of enterprise. What would happen if no cotton was furnished for three years? I will not stop to depict what every one can imagine, but this is certain. England would topple headlong and carry the whole civilized world with her, save the South. It turned out that this was hilariously wrong in every possible respect. The important part, however, is not whether it was true, but that Hammond believed it was true. And the idea went far beyond him as just an individual. Note that Hammond believed that losing cotton would basically overturn the political structure of Europe. That said, he never did entirely lay out why he expected that would happen. For many southern planters, this idea seemed entirely natural. Was not the industry of Lancaster dependent upon cotton? Presumably, they believed that unrest among the unemployed would bring down revolution. There was precedent for this, but also against it. Although important to the economy, Cotton and weaving were not the only industries of importance even just in Lancaster. The revolutions of 1848 took their spark from widespread and persistent hunger and political suppression, not just unemployment. But in the South, and then the Confederacy, 
It seemed very plausible given how eagerly foreigners lined up at the wharves of New Orleans and New York to get their hands on the stuff. And so they thought, if the English mills ran empty, would they not intervene on the side of the South in desperation to get more of the stuff? And given Britain's importance in maintaining the balance of power in Europe, could they afford to let some other imperial power get the advantage? Besides, the British had long rivaled the upstart Yankees, and hadn't they always gotten on so well with the noble-hearted cavaliers of the South, with their plantations so similar to English estates? As it turned out, there was only a slim truth at best, and sometimes not at all, to those propositions either. And yet they mesmerized the planter elite. Among other aspects, these ideas put the South at the center of all world commerce. They implicitly excused slave owners from moral responsibility. After all, if slave labor really was better than free labor, and the annual cotton crop saved civilization itself, then how could slave owners take any blame? In practice, of course, this manifested as an indignant tone that they could ever be held responsible for slavery, but also as an implicit view that other nations, particularly Great Britain, cared for nothing but financial gain. There's a small irony in that Southerners often accused Northerners of being little more than money-mad hirelings, but essentially counted on the British also fulfilling the stereotype of a nation of shopkeepers, and caring about nothing more than wealth. And yet in the same breath, Confederates hoped that the nation of shopkeepers would deploy the armies and navies that battled the French Revolution and Napoleon for 15 years. Southerners also did not entirely understand the depth of British abolitionism, which would become the deciding factor that ultimately and permanently ended the possibility of international recognition in 1862. If there was one primary international issue that Britain cared about, then, well, it was probably the balance of power in Europe. But if there was a second issue, it was the international slave trade. It mattered politically in Britain, and represented a unifying issue that nearly all political figures of importance agreed upon. The British Foreign Office had an entire section dealing with the slave trade, and British ships patrolled the waters off of the African coast vigorously to stem the flow. Interestingly, Americans were the most egregious violators, although not exactly in the way you might expect. Few slaves in this period arrived in the United States directly from Africa, probably no more than a few thousand over a decade or so. That might seem like a large number, but remember that this compared to an existing American slave population of 4 million in 1860. Instead, American violators mostly sailed between African slave ports and Brazil. Brazil had technically banned the trade in 1850, but rarely enforced this. Ruthless Americans for decades took advantage of a loophole in Britain's cordon around Africa. Owing to the settlement of the War of 1812, American ships were partly exempted from search by British vessels. Instead, the American Navy should have kept watch over the slave trade themselves, arresting violators and releasing any slaves in their cargoes. However, the tiny American Navy could barely spare a single ship for African waters, although they patrolled more vigorously in the Caribbean. The traders, curiously enough, often came from states with strong abolition movements themselves, such as Massachusetts and New York. Firms outfitted slave ships openly in the yards of New York Harbor. Regardless, American involvement with the slave trade flowed in large part from lax enforcement among Democrats in high office. Democrats tended more towards pro-slavery sentiments than Whigs and later Republicans, and pro-slavery Democrats would hardly be swift to enforce such laws. 
but even anti-slavery Democrats often held views very suspicious of British interference. Besides, they tended to frown on government intervention in controlling trade. In their view, the government should be trying to expand international trade through low tariffs and minimal regulations, and, well, they found it easier to just avert their gaze. The new Lincoln administration, and in particular Secretary of State William Seward, could promise more action in African waters. In the immediate moment, however, the Navy had to stretch itself very thin indeed. But to compensate, Seward would allow British ships much more latitude to stop and search Americans. Slave traders would not find an administration quick to aid them now. William Seward and British Prime Minister Henry John Temple, Lord Palmerston, did not have a great deal in common except abolitionism. Well, they did have at least two other things in common. Both men were happy to promise violence when politically convenient, and both men cordially detested one another for that same attitude. Lord Palmerston was, more or less, the inventor of gunboat diplomacy, and one of the minds behind the Opium Wars. He happily threatened war whenever it suited him, and that was quite often indeed. It wasn't specifically that he wanted to spark some huge conflict, but that he viewed the threat of violence as a convenient diplomatic lever. As it turned out, he despised the same trait in William Seward. Seward was a complex man. Despite the great documentation of his life and actions, he frequently puzzled contemporaries in his day and historians in ours. He could issue ferocious threats one day and proclaim peace the next. He could mutter grim warnings of social conflict to further the cause of abolition and his career, and then denounce radicalism on the topic afterward. Most puzzling of all, he went from undercutting Abraham Lincoln in his first months in office to swiftly becoming the firm, loyal, right-hand man. The clash between Seward and Palmerston predated the war in part. During the months leading up towards the Republican nomination, Seward made himself deliberately absent from the political scene, in large part to avoid any gaffes or high-profile disputes in an extremely charged environment, and he traveled to Europe. Of course, as a major politician, he shook hands with numerous public figures and attended dinners. Here, he presented himself as equal parts charming friend of Britain, but also a fanatic patriot of his country who just might go to war with Her Majesty's government over trifles. In large part, his behavior was a performance, not necessarily a representation of his real feelings. But there was a grain of truth to this. Once in office, Seward quickly devised a plan to push some European power into declaring war on the United States. He made some of the same basic mistakes as Lincoln in assuming that southern states constituting the Confederacy would rush to the old flag if their fellows in another state fell under the threat of a foreign power. He believed that at some primal level they were still loyal. And perhaps had the political situation been slightly different, that might have worked. If, for example, he had been in a position to keep Virginia loyal. But he wasn't, and the country wasn't, and Lincoln saw that, well, they had enough to manage already without fighting abroad. He ultimately responded to Seward's idea by simply explaining that the country should pursue one war at a time, and he stood down when necessary. In the meantime, Seward and Lincoln also had to replace the Foreign Service. In Europe, many diplomats stayed at their posts for extended periods. Not always, of course, but a minister or diplomat with the favor of his home government might stay on the same post for a decade. In exceptional circumstances, men such as the brilliant Austrian diplomat Clemens von Metternich might retain office for a quarter century or more. But in the American Republic, 
foreign ministers and diplomats often changed over with the presidential election every four years. Even in cases of re-election, presidents often took the opportunity to make changes. The new Lincoln administration would obviously place its own loyal party men in these plum positions, and they did so with exceptional haste and concern because many of the former President Buchanan's appointees turned traitor. They used their diplomatic status to undermine the United States in the hope of winning favor with the new Confederate government. European ministers and royal courts listened in astonishment as American embassies suddenly declared the Union forever dissolved and expressed confidently that this was entirely lawful under the Constitution. It might have appeared that the diplomatic game would immediately turn in the Confederacy's favor, before the new diplomats could even set foot in the countries of their assignments. And yet, these diplomats had yet to reckon with the most cunning and dangerous foe of the Confederate diplomacy, which was also Confederate diplomacy. Believing, as they did, in the supremacy of cotton, it became an article of faith among Southerners that Britain would quickly act to break any foreign blockade. Most seemed to assume that, furthermore, Britain would immediately recognize the Confederacy, give it military and financial aid, and together the two countries would easily push back any military attempt by the Union to regain control. In a fateful decision, Southerners began to hoard cotton, withholding it from the market in late 1860 and 1861. The Confederacy did not mandate this. It stemmed entirely from public sentiment. As such, it required no enforcement for planters cheerfully volunteered. As far as they were concerned, too, it was simply a delay in selling the cotton, but they fully expected to receive the value in time. Indeed, with the threat of conflict, prices might even increase to their considerable benefit. The cotton planting season following secession went on more or less as expected, beginning in the spring of 1861. Open conflict had not yet broken out, so however nervous and excited the atmosphere, it did not affect slavery or cotton very much. In the political aftermath of the bombardment of Fort Sumter, of course, Virginia joined the Confederacy. This brought in North Carolina and Tennessee, and seemingly protected the cotton harvest for most of the Confederacy. Only border regions and part of Virginia would come under immediate threat of disruption, and cotton planting was relatively thin there. Now, for its own reasons, the Lincoln administration did not wish to openly threaten the slaveholding system just then and most of the local commanders and border regions made no move to disrupt the annual planting or slavery over the long summer. And the Confederate victory at Bull Run, then, helped push back the Union tide for the moment. And yet, when August came and the first fruits of the annual cotton harvest bloomed, the bales mostly stayed right where they were. Substantial supplies did make their way to major ports such as Charleston and New Orleans, but once there, mostly stayed put. The bales four or five hundred pounds of cotton each, would sit in warehouses. Most planters weren't selling, and most traders or factors weren't buying, partly on account of the blockade. Though still quite loose, the large and slow merchant ships of peacetime stood no chance against anything but the slowest blockade vessels. At this point, however, the Union Navy was still desperate to build up and could not watch all of the ports all of the time. Yet there was another side to this tale. In fact, cotton rarely went from southern ports to Europe, at least not directly. More usually, the bales went to a northern port, most often New York, for export. Even if southerners had tried to export everything they could, the shipping just wasn't available. 
many Northern and European shipping firms might also worry that the American government would come after them for tariffs or other legal issues. In short, actually getting the cotton to European markets would have required considerable planning in advance. The Confederacy had a window to do so, but did not take advantage of it in the moment. In fact, the Davis government considered a proposal to immediately transport as much cotton as possible across the Atlantic, even if only to sit in a warehouse there instead. This idea had much to recommend it, most significantly that it could give the Davis government a valuable lever for trade and finance and to make diplomatic bargains with. But doing so would mean, in effect, a repudiation of the King Cotton thesis. It would mean accepting that Britain had no specific interest in the Confederacy and would not, by default, side with the breakaway territory. It would involve treating cotton as a mere market commodity and not the lever of global commerce. To take this decision would require the Confederate government reevaluate all its premises and beliefs, at least by implication. So, the cabinet voted against the proposal, with only Attorney General Judah P. Benjamin dissenting. Benjamin, more worldwide and skilled in finance, understood the value of the plan. Incidentally, if you happen to recall back to our earlier episodes, you may recall that we've referred to him as Secretary of War. Judah P. Benjamin actually held the post of Confederate Attorney General first, in which his talents were entirely wasted as there was no national judiciary in the Confederacy. He would then hold the post of Secretary of War, and thereafter Secretary of State. In that last role, he finally found the appropriate field for his talents, though by then he faced a nigh-impossible task. The first Confederate Secretary of State was, in fact, Georgia's own Robert Toombs, one of the prime movers behind the formation of the Confederacy. You may recall that Robert Toombs first became an arch-secessionist and then brought Alexander Stevens into the fold. However, his ambition to gain the presidency of the Confederacy failed, and the cabinet position instead became a bitter consolation prize. At the time, however, he had few resources and virtually no funds with which to operate, and in addition, he cared very little for the leadership of Jefferson Davis. Four days after the Battle of Bull Run, or Manassas as the Confederates called it, he resigned in order to seek glory on the battlefield. His replacement was Robert Hunter, who held the post until the spring of 1862. This contributed to more than a little confusion in the Confederate Foreign Service, although that amounted to only a handful of agents in Britain, France, and Spain. The most important of these in the early months of the war was William Lowndes Yancey. Now, Yancey was essentially the arch-secessionist of the arch-secessionists. Though not really an important or powerful politician himself, Yancey plied his trade as a power broker and influence peddler behind the scenes. He worked for years to remold the Democrats in the fashion of a loyal Calhounite. While certainly not the only individual responsible, he also became one of the prime movers behind the breakup of the Democrats at the 1860 presidential convention. He shoved the critical issue of slavery to the forefront of party politics, and then walked out with other Southern delegates unless he got his preferred way. When secession went through, Yancey again placed himself in the vanguard. Rather than seek a domestic position, he took on a critical role in pursuing foreign recognition of the Confederacy. In January 1861, he boarded a ship bound for Europe in order to act as an official envoy, although not precisely an ambassador, from the nascent Confederacy. Recognition by foreign powers, most significantly Britain, would not in itself have greatly advanced the cause of the Confederacy. In theory, 
Britain, France, or Spain could have recognized the Confederacy as a state without bothering themselves with its fate. In practice, everyone, the United States included, would have regarded such recognition as tantamount to intervention in the conflict. Seward threatened war if Britain did so. Recognition is a statement that the first issuing state views the second as an ongoing factor in the world. In a more practical sense, it would also have opened the way for formal diplomatic missions, treaties, or other agreements between a European power and the Confederacy. Significantly, it could also have allowed Confederate agents to openly make contracts, buy and sell in the markets of Europe, and otherwise assist their government. While they did so anyway, their activities were always constrained by the lack of formal legal arrangements. When Yancey arrived in London, he expected to be received warmly by the government of Lord Palmerston. But Yancey, like so many Southerners, believed in the primacy of cotton. Unfortunately for him, and fortunately for most everyone else in the world, Lord Palmerston did not. The Confederacy, but not cotton, had immediately become a hot-button political topic in Britain, one which left Lord Palmerston walking a painful tightrope. Advocates of greater democracy within Britain, such as John Bright, immediately supported the Union, and quite loudly at that. However, many conservative MPs eagerly promoted the Confederacy, and even entertained hopes that it would create a formal aristocracy of its own. These are tendencies and not absolutes. Some very high-ranking nobles strongly favored the United States, for example. And we should also recognize that to a very strong degree, the debate over the Civil War in Britain reflected domestic questions of how far democracy should go in Britain regardless of what happened in the United States. The concern over the crisis ran deep for Lord Palmerston, however. He had a number of major points to work through. First, if he openly opposed the United States, then it could easily lead to the bellicose Seward and the unknown Lincoln invading British North America. While he publicly discounted any threat, Palmerston also knew that in practice, the United States could probably sustain a far larger land army and yet make itself invulnerable to invasion by any force Britain could feasibly dispatch to British North America. Second, Palmerston at least hesitated before encouraging separatist movements, given that Britain included restless Ireland and distant India, plus territories in the Caribbean that might well prefer going their own way. Third, and possibly most important, he distrusted the Confederacy almost instinctively, both because of the slavery issue which could hardly be avoided, but also because they looked very cozy with France. Although Anglo-French relations had warmed in recent years, Palmerston had no inclination to help feed Napoleon III's ambitions, except where it was convenient for Britain. On all of these points, William Yancey proved just about the worst possible envoy the Confederacy could have chosen. He attained fame for uncompromising secessionism, fiery hot rhetoric, and backroom bargaining. Although cunning in his own way, he had no diplomatic experience and absolutely no understanding of how Britain might view these issues. Nestled in the heart of Southern politics, he could barely understand why others might object to the slave trade, much less slavery itself. While Yancey obtained a few unofficial meetings with the Foreign Office, he failed to win the Palmerston government's recognition. Even France hesitated to do so. Among other things, Yancey repeated the party line that the Confederate Constitution formally banned slave trading outside its borders. However, as a known and very vocal slavery advocate, his word did not necessarily carry credibility on the issue, 
In addition, he could barely restrain his irritation when Britons questioned the morality of the Confederacy's slave economy. Yet those questions were inevitable, not least because of Alexander Stevens' infamous cornerstone speech, which spread far across the Atlantic. Lord Palmerston also had reason to view the Confederacy's foreign relations with suspicion. Although the Confederate Constitution formally disavowed the international slave trade, its extraordinarily tight protections for property, which explicitly included slaves, might well undercut it. Furthermore, the Confederate government had no credibility for enforcement and very definitely refused to cooperate in patrolling the trade around African slave ports. In fact, the British consul in Charleston, a man named Robert Bunch, sent home dispatches to the government laying out that the slavery-mad Confederacy would restart the slave trade immediately given the chance. Finally, the Palmerston government had to consider the international fallout from a separate Confederacy. Southerners, and in particular Southerners from the original states which formed the Confederacy, had been neck-deep in a wave of filibustering in the 1850s. They had launched numerous risky and often half-mad schemes to liberate or conquer various countries in Central America, or the Caribbean. Note again that these were all private and not the policy of the federal government, but Washington found it had a hard time preventing the expeditions to its repeated embarrassment. More to the point, many of these same men had ambitions to acquire Cuba for the United States, believing they could turn it into a slave state or even several in order to turn the tide of power at home. They might harbor the notion of advancing their power further into the Caribbean now that they had joined the Confederacy, and that threatened British possessions such as Jamaica. Palmerston would hardly aid a power that could easily turn on Britain, or even him personally, in the future. For all of these reasons, the Palmerston government held back from recognizing the Confederacy. Yet at the same time, the rapid expansion of the Confederacy into the Upper South and the Union round at Bull Run suggested that it might well survive. So, he temporized. After all, he had no need for haste on the issue. He could afford to wait and see whether the Confederacy really was a legitimate nation able to maintain its borders. And he had that confidence because he knew what Southerners did not. Specifically, cotton had grown a little fat while sitting on its throne. The 1860 cotton market had achieved record-breaking sales, and the United States exported it by the thousands of tons. In fact, they had exported a little too much cotton. The mills of Britain had nearly a year's supply just waiting in the warehouses. Without secession, the cotton prices probably would have collapsed instead of expanding further, or even remaining static. Lord Palmerston did want to reopen the cotton trade, but it was never a primary foreign policy goal of his country. Ironically, both Jefferson Davis and William Seward alike failed to realize this for some time. They might have heard, for instance, that some of the mills ran on short hours. But this actually occurred primarily because the mills had glutted the market. More to the point, Britain had a backup plan. Cotton, unusually if not uniquely, grows in several distinct varieties around the world, old and new. And British-influenced Egypt and British-controlled India just so happened to be home ground for the two old-world cotton breeds. Upon seeing unrest in America, Britain began to look elsewhere for its cotton, and found fertile ground, if you'll pardon the pun. This would not entirely replace cotton from the Confederate States, but it did limit the economic impact. The Trent Affair, which we detail in the episode on that one event, 
nearly upset the balance as the belligerent Palmerston clashed with the equally bellicose Seward. To very briefly recap, a rather unpleasant American naval captain swerved from his official orders to take captive two Confederate officials, James Mason and James Slidell, in October of 1861. They had been dispatched officially by the Davis government to Britain to relieve the, well, by now, despairing Yancey. Crucially, however, said captain stopped and seized the passengers from a British ship without obeying any of the rules, formal or informal. The official outcry, unsurprisingly, led to many in the Union, Confederacy, and Britain alike to believe that recognition and even military aid might be immediately forthcoming. And yet the Palmerston government held back. In part, they were restrained by cooler heads from within the power centers of the government. Famously, Prince Albert, the husband of Queen Victoria, wrote a response to Palmerston suggesting that the British government give the Americans a diplomatic way out of the crisis. This turned out to be one of Prince Albert's last achievements. Already weakened by illness, he died just days later. The ironic end of the Trent Affair was that, if anything, relations between Britain and the United States slowly warmed, at least to a degree. Great Britain took no action in the end to halt sales of vital military supplies to America. And the Palmerston government declined to recognize the Confederacy or even to receive James Mason formally. While allowing some informal meetings, they never would put much stock in the man or his government. John Slidell, dispatched to Paris, had a much easier time of it because of Napoleon III's ambitions for Mexican Empire. Yet he also accomplished little in the end because of the formidable influence of the British on the subject. And in one of those informal meetings, Mason and Slidell had the unfortunate distinction of undermining their own government's policies, although they had no choice in practice. As the federal blockade grew tighter and tighter still over the fall and winter, they had to implicitly acknowledge it was a true blockade under international law. By the spring of 1862, the Confederacy became desperate to export cotton at any price or risk, leading to an epidemic of blockade running. But the blockade runners themselves would face increasing pressure over time, and could never replace pre-war peacetime trade. In the final analysis, the Confederacy committed to a complete, fatal, and ultimately final mistake. Regarding cotton as king, they failed to realize that it was just another fiber material, one commodity among many. Its importance to their economy did not make it the foundation of global commerce, any more than sugar appeared a century earlier. Indeed, the Confederacy in early 1861 accomplished what the Union could only dream of doing at that specific time. They effectively blockaded themselves. And far from sparking international recognition and aid, the governments of Europe simply watched and sought to use the growing civil war as a means to accomplish their own goals. In theory, the Confederacy could have taken another path, a coldly analytical one that effectively leveraged cotton for all it was worth. Perhaps, had they done so, the Confederacy might have survived. Yet this would have required the planter elite to thoroughly reconsider their own worldview. They would have had to assess themselves from the perspective of a man in London. Yet doing so would essentially require them to question the very foundations of the Confederacy, for the man on the street in London would not bargain with slavery. And so the crown tumbled from the head of King Cotton, and the Confederacy waited with increasing anxiety for the British Armada that would never arrive. This has been the American Civil War Podcast. Thank you for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time.